Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Business builder, sales leader, author, coach, consultant, teacher, chief clarity officer. Mark Boundy has grown businesses in a variety of industries by virtue of his relentless focus on uncovering customer value and delivering high value results. While at W.L. Gore and Associates, Mark began weaving a focus on customer value into Miller-Hyman's complex selling methodologies. This combination grew one of that company's most competition-threatened products by 20% per year, every year, while increasing margins and profits. At Lucent Technologies, Mark applied his customer value approach, pivoting the world's first carrier class VOIP product away from a cost saving to a platform for delivering applications which had never existed, virtual call centers, virtual office presence, even the first product roadmap for unified communications platforms and being awarded a patent for multimedia conferencing. Switching to commercial finance, he ultimately found his way to GE Capital. Instead of simply selling money, the ultimate commodity, Mark learned each customer's businesses in order to deliver unique value to each with decidedly non-commodity pricing. Mark's client portfolio was in the top 5% in top line revenue while also in the top 5% for profitability. Most recently, Mark is championing a new effort he calls mediocrities focused on breaking people and companies out of a quote-unquote best practice mindset, fighting mediocrity, and fostering creative problem-solving strategies in order to challenge the status quo and ultimately help teams and their cultures define and decide if processes and policies fit the situation and how to do that. Mark, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. Mark, thanks so much for joining with me today. As I've done some research on your background, I'm truly impressed. And I look forward for our listeners today to listen, learn, and get to know a little bit more about you and the services that you provide for companies, CEOs, leaders, and I guess their, you know, their employees as well. So as you help them, you help who they work with and what they do as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and how you dove into your career. Well, I grew up in Michigan, got married right after Michigan Business School, moved out to Arizona. And my first big boy job, it wasn't my first job right after Michigan, but you know, the the first pancake out of the pan that's going to throw it's it. It's the best, isn't it? Oh, sometimes okay. I think my first one's the best. No, the, the, the first pancake <laughs> before the pan really gets like hot. And it, the pan- you didn't let it warm up. Yeah. Got right. It. Yeah. So- it was my second job, but it was the first big boy job. Okay. The first one that counted was at a company called W.L. Gore and Associates. You may have heard of Gore-Tex. 
this company had an amazing culture that was maniacally, insanely focused on customer value. Five times a day, every day, somebody would ask, what's our value here? What's our value? My first week, I was like going to headquarters and I was traveling with one of the more senior product managers. I was a you know brand new product manager. His phone rang. He picks it up. It's one of the sales guys. Sales guy said, I was just at such and such a customer and I think they have a need for a, a cable assembly, which is what we sold. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be for your product, Mr. Product Manager. And the product manager said, well, that sounds good. What's our value? Sales guy said, well, I don't know yet, but I just thought it was you. Can, you, can I tell you about it? And the product manager said, why are you calling me? Don't call me back until you know our value. And he hung up, didn't say goodbye, slammed the phone down. Maybe it was for my benefit, but you know, after staying there for nine years, it really wasn't that out of character for people at that company. We were maniacal about understanding what is the value. And value for the company or value for the customer? What value are we providing the customer? The answer to that question, what's our value, is you had to be able to articulate what is who's the com- customer? What business are they in? What industry in, are they in? How do they compete? How are we going to? How do they compete? How are we going to help them compete more with our cable? How much more effectively are they compete? How many dollars does the customer think they're going to achieve because they're going to be more competitive with us? And how many of those dollars do we think that we can take as our price premium? That one question: What's our value? is what's our differentiation and how much is it worth? Wow. Crazy, that's right? that's a big thing to learn, like right out of the bat. What did you think as your, you know, your first big boy job and what did that change for you? Well, because it was my first big boy job, they installed these value goggles in my brain. And you drank the Kool-Aid and right? the glass. I, I totally drank the Kool-Aid. And then, you know, my next job my next job, I invented, I was the guy, I'm the guy who invented the virtual call center. So that's my fault when you get called out of India. But during COVID, when your cell phone wasn't working and yeah. you had to call a call center and there actually could be people working in call centers from home because they, even though they couldn't work in a large group, that's my fault too. So, so now I know who to like yeah, teach you know, their house like, or something. So perfect. But it was it was because I was the product manager for a product that the company thought was a cost savings product. And I said, no, there's things you can do with this that you can't do with a regular phone system. Let's sell those. And so suddenly this thing was a world beating product that was pretty important. And so then, you know, in job after job, it's what's our value? What's our differentiation? How do I leverage that? And how do I make the customer's world better? How, and I developed this skill set of coming up to speed in a customer's business, not just, hey, being able to recite what's their industry, but how do they compete? How do they differentiate? How do they think they compete? How can I help them compete more? What's important to them and how can I contribute to that? And that's, that was my mindset. 
So then, you know, I became a sales performance consultant for the world's largest B2B sales training company. And their sales training allowed you to do that. You you weren't breaking the sales training if you did that, but they didn't teach it overtly. So I kind of, after eight years, I said, you know, I'm basically telling people how to go beyond the sales training the right way, the way I learned with my value goggles. Maybe I should just start doing it on my own. And so, therefore, you have. There I am. And so, here I am. How long ago did you start out on your own? Uh, about nine years. Okay. okay. Yeah. What did you think you were going to be? Like, going back to when you were a, a, a kid, like, where was your heart at? What did you think you were going to be doing? Because you know, what you're doing now is, is, I mean, it's relationships, there's business, there's sales, there's this and that. Where, were you, where did you begin? Uh, well, I started in high school. I wanted to be a dentist. Because I really liked, because I really liked sciences, and I thought, you know, dentists don't have to be on call all night. So I think that's what I want to be. It was literally simple. Well, that's a value in a different way, right? And then I kind of said, you know, dentists go—that's not an exciting job—and they go deaf because of the drills. Did you know they get a lot of hearing damage? Actually, I did not know that. That drill—if you're around it all day—it's hard on your hearing. I did yeah. not know that. See, I learned uh, something new. Yeah. So then I kind of dropped out, figured, when well, what do I do? My father was- so Originally, a, you were going to school to be like, like a science track to go yeah, to dentistry. Yeah. Interesting. And so I dropped out. My father was an engineer, a designer. Okay. Let, let's go there. I learned yeah. I dropped out. All right. Here's this high achiever. And like, I dropped out. I don't think that's super uncommon for kids these days either to like- I'm not on the path that I feel I need to be on. Time out. Yeah. I kept on doing worse and worse every semester because I kept on getting more and more disillusioned between with, I'm quite sure I don't want to be a dentist, but I don't know what I do want to do. And college is absolutely the wrong place to figure that out. Yes. I mean, you can take a lot of different courses on a lot of different subjects, but you have zero exposure to what applying those subjects in a job is going to look like. So when I dropped out, I was the manager of a little stereo shop and you know I did some marketing research for them and and my father worked in office furniture industry but he was an inventor at his company and responsible for new products. So I said, I love new products. I want to be a guy who markets new products. Don't know what, don't know where. So I went to Michigan Business School with a marketing degree and I begged and pleaded with the professor who taught graduate level new products management. And I got to be like the first undergrad kid he'd ever taken into new products management because that was what I was passionate about. So I think that's, I think that's a fascinating story. So, you know, and my grades were so bad before I dropped out that when I walked on campus at the University of Michigan, they said, we're not admitting you. But you can pay as a non-degree-seeking student, no matter how many credits you take, we'll never give you a degree, but you can come in on the first day of classes and beg a professor to add you into the class using the drop ad slip. Okay. And so I took a full load of courses, drop ad, paid for them, and got in 4.1 grade average, then applied and got in. But I wasn't in Michigan Business School yet. I was in the liberal arts school. So I had to get another 4.1 grade average to get admitted into the business program. 
so I learned how to sell and beg and cajole professors to let me into their class. That was a sales experience. And you had, you know, as a kid, were you sales driven? Were you like, I'm okay being in front of people. I don't mind the ask. You know, sometimes with sales, I'm like, it's the ask. That's the sometimes difficult thing. Yeah. You know, I was in theater and I was in performing arts and I was Mr. Extracurricular. So doing all that stuff, student government, student newspaper, yearbook and all that stuff. So that stuff wasn't hard for me. That asking wasn't hard. At Michigan, at, in business school, I was the gunner, right? So I had dropped out. So I was three or four years older than everybody else in undergrad business school. And I had worked full time before. So if you're taking 16 credit hours, that means you're in class for 16 hours a week. Maybe you study for another 16 hours and like that's, it's crazy to study for another well, imagine if you study for 24 hours to get up to 40 hours a week, you study 150% of the hours you actually went to class. You know what kind of grades you get? <laughs> it's it's I like it's not because I was a genius. It was just because I knew how to put in a 40-hour week. You knew how to work. And you are now going after something that you were passionate about, which is yeah, very different. I, I was the guy who was, you know, like asking questions and participating. And so I was on I was I found out that I was on the gunner bingo cards, right? We're gonna. I, mean, I know we. I know we don't have a lot of like, like young listeners or anything uh, on our program, but I think your story is an interesting one for entrepreneurs and for offspring that are coming up because a lot of us are super high achievers. We've worked really hard to get where we are. We are going, 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 and then to maybe see one of our offspring be like, you dropped out. What are yeah, you doing? But, mom, but, yeah. but mom was so scared. Like, oh, you're never going back. Yeah, I am, mom. I just don't know what for. Yeah. So very, very super, super smart. So let's let's dive into, you know, one of the elephants in the room of of thinking that in your history, maybe a parent was like, okay, don't be mediocre, be great. And you're like, I'm just not ready to be great yet because I don't know what I'm going to be. So let's talk about mediocrity because that gets back into your, you know, your flair and your why of what you're doing now. So tell us about, you know, mediocrity and why it inspired you to start your most recent business. Yeah, even in high school, I wrote I for the high school newspaper. There was it came out once a month, and there was one column that they allowed you to write. There was a snarky, humorous column about life. At this. Were you the author? I was. Anybody could be the author, but <laughs> I always wrote the best one, so they ended up always asking me to write them. So I've got this snark gene from high since high school, and so I was writing a, an article you know, for LinkedIn. And instead of the usual clip art or you know, stock photo at the top of the article, I decided I was going to write, just make up a meme. And so I found an old picture of Socrates and an old picture, a picture that you could paste on of Groucho Marx glasses. Okay. So I put Groucho Marx in glasses on Socrates and I wrote a quote, said, strive earnestly to be just like your competitors. And then the quote was from a guy named Mediocrates. And a friend of mine who's a philosopher, she just like, she immediately called me and said, I love this. We have to do this. You have to well, make it- I've seen that on your LinkedIn site. So it's interesting to hear the background behind that. So I just made it up thinking, oh, Mediocrates, that's funny. Ha, 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 ha. And so we started building this community. 
And so I'm still trying to figure out what it, what that is and what it's going to be. In my life, I've never, you know, I've had this job in cable and then telecom and then selling money and then sales training and now being a consultant. So life to me is not about what you're going to do when you grow up. It's about what are you going to do next? And it's, it's okay to choose your passion and chase, run after your passion really hard. But if that runs its course or you find out that it has to change, change. There's no need to um, make yourself miserable and keep running after dental school if that's just not going to be a life that you want. Yeah. I think that also takes, I mean, that takes bravery to make those switches and, and a faith in yourself that I can make it happen. Yeah. So let me tell you and your listeners something I learned. If you took a look at my life and my career and the different jobs and how very different each of those jobs were, if you were a recruiter looking at my resume, you would barf. <laughs> but it really isn't that scary because every job that I got, something that I did before taught me how to do 80 or 90% of the following job. When I went from being a new products manager selling telecommunications equipment to selling commercial real estate loans, being a commercial real estate lender, you know, the financial analysis you have to do when you're talking to your executive and asking for $17 million for a new product, it's the exact same financial analysis that you've got to do when you're asking a loan committee for $17 million for a building. The only thing I had to learn was how to read a title report and a real estate appraisal. Everything else was just like it. So if I had frozen myself and said, hey, man, this is a completely different industry. I know nothing about it. The imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome. Yes, yes. And but by just diving into it a little bit, it was always, man, there's so much in common. I already know so much about this. I don't have to be afraid. I'm learning new stuff and that's cool. But I'm, I'm, already, I'm mostly up to speed. Like, I don't have to be afraid. And once you actually make the jump or the leap, you're like, hey, I actually know more about this industry than I thought. Once you start looking for the commonalities, they pop up. Once you look for the parts of the job that you already know, they are there. So stop being afraid to move because you know, and you know, I, I think we've all seen the statistics that say men will apply for a job that they like barely fit for and women have to meet all the requirements. There is something I've read about that. Yes. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> Just stop because you know so much about that mm -hmm. next job. Stop being afraid. Yeah. I think that's just, that's a, a big point to make uh, for today's listeners and for myself. What do you think about mediocre? What's your thought process on companies, on people, on staying in the same thing and being how we are pressured to be quote unquote ordinary? Yeah. You know, that's it. Mediocre isn't bad. It's not poor performance. It's acceptable performance. I'm, it's good I'm, enough. I'm, I'm giggling because, you know, I'm a person who you know, I have to tell myself sometimes it, and it, it is good enough. Like I can't go for this perfection. I have to sometimes have it be good enough, but I'm not a, I'm not a good enough person. It's like, I have know, to set I, my, 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 this, yet I'm very different than other people. Allison, I mean, and that's something really important, right? You are good enough. You are a worthy person. That's not what I'm saying. But yeah. the job you did is sufficient. That's 
it's not that you are not a good or a bad or an enough right. person. About a That's not here. what we're talking about with mediocre. It's that you allowed yourself to accept acceptable. Sometimes, sometimes that's all you need. But, you know, in my new book, I'm writing ab about what mediocre companies, and actually I, I made up another word, antipreneurial, big companies. Antipreneurial. Right? The that's, a, that's a tongue twister right there, but yes. But you know, you, you've never heard the word, but you know exactly what it is if you've worked in a big company. But what does a, a mediocre company do that an excellent company, the ones that I, I want to write about and help my clients become, what is the difference between those two? And that kind of ties up to mediocrity and mediocrities, but think about- What is the difference? Like there's, I have 15 difference. One of the, you know, in the 15 chapters, one difference per chapter. And think about the metrics. If you're a CEO, you have a dashboard of KPIs and metrics that you track every day, every week, every month, every quarter, some, not all of them, every one of those, but you have numbers that you look at. I challenge every everybody who leads a business, open those up and look at them. How many of them are inwardly focused about what you do inside your company and how many of them are for how much value you create in your customer's mind? The purpose Amen. of- I'm going to raise right? my glass to that one. Wow. That's, right? that's really purpose, something to think about. Yeah, yeah. The purpose of every company, like Peter Drucker says, the purpose of a company is to find and keep a customer. I say, okay, the purpose of a company is to produce more value for your customers than it costs you to deliver, which is- very similar to the same thing. If the purpose of your company is to create value and you haven't measured it in any of your dashboard or your KPIs, I would rather have, and this is a famous statistician said, rather have an approximate measure to the right question than the precise answer to the wrong question. So value is the desirability measured monetarily if you can of the outcomes a customer achieves when they do business with you, right? Your customers don't buy your product or service. They buy their own outcomes for their own reasons. Say that again. I think that's really important. I want you to say that again. Your customers do not buy your product or your service. They don't care about your product or service. It does not move their gas meter. G-A-S, give a hoot. It doesn't move their gas meter. What they buy is their own outcomes for their own reasons. And so value is the desirability of those outcomes that a customer achieves when they do business with you. Value only exists in your customer's mind. So of course it's hard to measure well, because it's between your customer's ears. Yes. And then does every customer, I mean, are there groupings of customers that think the same way that that's what you're going for? Or how do you awesome. know what they're, yeah. what do you, how do you know what they're valuing? They're coming awesome. to you for a service. We yeah. don't know what they're valuing. So let me take you back to that phone call while I was sitting and watching that product manager. He asked, what's our value? And the answer was, here's how we're different. Here's how we're better. And here's how much it's worth to the customer. Now, in that very first sales conversation with a customer, they may not be able to quantify how many dollars it's worth. And that's fine. But on the first conversation, you can say, 
why did you even call me? You know that WL Gore is the most expensive on the market and you're talking to me, why? Why are why am I even here? And we actually had salespeople who would say that. Why am I even here? You know we're the most expensive. And the customer would say, well, it's because we're stuck. When we tried to go to this competitor, they couldn't do this part of it. They could do this, but they couldn't do that. And this competitor could do this, but they can't do that. Nobody can do this. And we need something, somebody that can do all three. Can you do all three? Well, yeah. Well, why is it important that it has to be all three? Well, here's why we need this. Here's why we need this. Here's why we need this. So that customer may not have been thought it through to the point where they've quantified monetarily what they can't do. But you could call that product manager and say, hey, we need a cable and it has to do A plus B and C and nobody else can do it. And here's what it means to them in terms of a business. I haven't quantified it yet, but we know there's value here. And from that first call, you can do that. And you can say, "I've we've got some value identified an outcome. Very quickly, those salespeople could get that customer to quantify it. And as soon as the value, the dollar value we'd identified was going to be greater than our price premium, we knew there was more value than we were going to cost. So I call that deal winning value. I've identified a million dollars that we're going to save the customer and I just can't with a straight face charge more than 400,000 because the competitors are at 150. I just, I can easily say we're going to be way more expensive, but. How do we transfer that to like, I mean, whether that's my small company or another small company, how do you transfer that to help us start to, you know, really go after the the value versus what we do. How are you helping people make that happen? Allison, thank you. Yes. So value is about the outcomes. So stop telling your customers I build two hundred dollars an hour. If what a customer is going to do for me. Yeah. Right. If a customer says to a therapist, I need somebody, I need to stop, I need to start sleeping through the night. I need to Put that divorce behind me. I need to be a better parent in this way. Okay. We've got a better parenting program. That's probably going to be about 12 sessions. That's going to be $14,000. You didn't say it's $120 a session. You didn't say it's $800 a session. Doesn't that, whatever the math is, right? You said you're paying to be a better parent. It's probably going to take 12. We're going to keep going until you're a better parent. So if it's 10, it's $14,000. If it's 15, 18, 20, it's $14,000. I'll stick with you until we get there. So now you are pricing yourself to the outcome, which is worth way more than 12 sessions at however many dollars an hour you charge. I'm going to take back to that. We are pricing ourselves to the outcome versus the actual transactional thing that I'm going to do each time. Yeah. I've said sometimes I do surgery to help people, you know, see freer without their glasses, see the world better, see themselves better. And it is a transformation. And I've said before, sometimes what I feel like I do, I sometimes like, 
I don't know that I charge enough for the huge value that this provides for people. And people would understand how it transforms somebody's life. Forever. It's not a one-time transaction. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, you get to have this 24 hours a day, you know, like seven days a week, every waking moment, you get this gift. You get this gift. You're no longer going to see halos when, you do, when you're driving. You're no longer going to have glitter. So, and you're going to be able, I, to, I, so, be able so, to swim laps. Right, and you struggle to to transfer. You know, how how can I make somebody realize the value, or do they have to realize that themselves? How does that yeah. come in the sales and customer service standpoint? Yeah. So now, value is how much better are you at doing that than the next best choice? Sometimes the next best choice is I'm going to just stick with what I got, and I'm going to have glasses the rest of my life. Sometimes it's I'm going to get surgery from another doctor and how much do they charge? Well, there's a difference. What is the outcome? What are the complication rates? You know, how close are they? How good do I feel this doctor is? How confident I am, am I that I can trust my vision to this doctor? That's worth something to them. So I charge for the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because that way, all of the stuff about how much they trust you versus somebody else, that's cooked in. And it's people will pay for that. How do you attract those people? How do you attract the customers that we want that are valuing what we have to offer? You have to make sure that you are interested in understanding them, their world, their life, and connecting what you offer to their existing priorities, right? In business, I could try to make my consulting about pricing a priority for a customer. Or I could- That's one way, yes. Right? One way to- I could change my customer's priorities. Mm Or I could find out what my customer's priorities already are and show them how what I sell is actually one of their top priorities already. Mm-hmm. That takes a little bit of creativity in description of what you do, but it really takes, we're more than that, it takes empathy and desire to know about your customer, right? Business to business salespeople are drilled to talk about the pain points. What are your pain points? What keeps you up at night? Don't stop there. You don't want to know your customer's pain points. You want to know their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their aspirations, their petty jealousies, the things that they like. You want to know everything. I'm I'm giggling on my end. Right? (laughs) How Um, much do I really want to know? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, when I'm selling to a, a corporation, it's like, if you do this, you're going to get the promotion over that guy you hate. We're going to see that that happens. And suddenly, my selling something to that company is a way for this guy to get a promotion over that person he is. I have a good friend who consults with eye practices, and he helps ophthal- optometrists mostly, but he has a patient intake form. And one of the things is a throwback to when this guy was a high school student. He was a really good high school swimmer, could have gotten scholarships. 
but he didn't get a scholarship because his eyes were so bad that he could never see the pace clock at the pool. And so he could never push himself. He was always behind the other people on his team. Years and years later, he found out there's such a thing as prescription swim goggles. Mm. And if he had known about prescription, the existence of mm-hmm. prescription swim goggles, you probably would have paid almost anything for them. The value was so high. For them and and it would have paid for itself in a college scholarship. Mm. Think about that. And so now he asks people, you know, what kinds of stuff do you do? Do you drive all day? Do we need and you know, do you need polarized driving prescription glasses? And you know, in a cheesy way, that's helping that eye doctor sell more stuff. But it's really just a way of saying, I want to learn more about your life and how you and use your eyes. And how I can help you with what I have I can, to offer. How I can help you live a better life with the eyes you've got. Yeah. How do you feel businesses can be helped to identify their own unique differentiators? What makes them you know, of value? How do you suggest I, that we look at that. Yeah, I have a whole practice uh, on that. And, and it's, a, it's actually a one hour thing. And I can send people out, go ahead and call me, send that, you know, reach out to me at mark at bountyconsulting.com and ask for the worksheet for your, the differentiation statement. Hmm. The differentiation statement is one sentence on what you do best in all the world and it's okay. Somebody asks, what do you do? You can be like, here's what I do. <laughs> I am the Here's best. why I'm different. Right? Here's how I'm different. I am the only one that does, I am the only eye doctor in my geographic area, which is just fine, that does this, that takes this extreme interest in my patients and makes them feel like I'm living that, helping them live a better life rather than just fixing their eyes. Working off of that, you know, how we're helping them, you know, a lot of what I do too is there's a lot of word of mouth and I'm sure a lot of other companies are. Some people will have several repeat customers. Sometimes it's that one, you know, purchase of a lifetime per se. How do you help or suggest that we get our customers to become, you know, quote unquote, I used the word raving fans before we we referred to um, a different book, but how do you get raving fans? which they perceived value. So now they want everybody else to know about that value. So value, remember it's the it's the outcomes they achieve. And the value is you learn about their value from understanding their expectations. All you do is meet their expectations that you worked so hard to co-create with them. Meet the expectations, make them feel thrilled about that. And then, you know, it's, boy, it was really fun working with you. By all means, feel free if there's anybody else you know that could stand to have, that could use this, go ahead and ask for referrals. It's not hard. I mean, it feel, it can feel a little cheesy when you're in, you know, medic, medicine. I feel like sometimes the medical world sometimes is different, yet yeah, my, yeah, my, it? I, yeah, my wife is a surgeon. I know all about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit hard, but also tell your GP. Tell your GP what a great experience you had. And now let the GP do the referring. Let the optometrists do the... If, I'm not sure what kind of eye doctor you are. But. Ophthalmologist. Yes. Okay. So mm-hmm. there's there, you'll get referrals from optometrists. Right? 
there's some pretty standard referrals. So when a patient gets a really great outcome, find a way that's the most natural way to get that referral. Hey, now this optometrist knows that you take care of my patients so well and they come back and whatever, right? So, yes. Yep. Trying um, to, you know, help your patients as well, coach. And yeah, then our I, team as well. Yeah, to, I, to yeah, that. I, I tell people, no matter what you're doing with a patient, with a customer, you're doing something with expectations. Whatever else you think you're doing, I'm examining your eyes. I'm giving you a bill. Whatever else you think you're doing, you are also doing one of three things with expectations. You're setting some, you're meeting some, or you're disappointing some. And if you don't know which you're doing, it's probably the third. So huh. everything you do, it, life is all about expectation management. So, Amen. Uh, yes, right? it is. So when you're talking to a patient and giving them aspirations for what they want to do and see and live with their eyes for the rest of their life, you're creating some expectations. Now, meet those expectations. Set proper expectations. Here's the risks and here's what could happen and here's what, you know, blah, 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 blah. We're Set going to McDonald's or we're going to the fancy restaurant or I'm going to fly Frontier versus I'm going to fly, I don't know, Delta or whatever it is. Like, what's my expectation of that? And is it being, you know, like you said, is it, I have to set it, is it being met or is it not being? Yeah. And not. And there are some people, right, going back to mediocrity, there are some people whose business is setting mediocre expectations and then meeting them at a crazy cheap price. Fine. If that's your business model, set mediocre expectations and deliver on those. So no matter what, deliver on the expectations because that's what somebody's expecting. <laughs> and so there's plenty of business. There's plenty of business out there for people who who want to have mediocre expectations. They're not my customers. They're not yours. But there is a place for those people. Mm -hmm. And if people only have mediocre expectations. Now it's your choice. Do I need this patient in my life or should I try to fill my OR with patients who really get what I try to do? Yes. Yes. You're, you are absolutely speaking my language and I'm sure I always transcend from, you know, what's happening in my business, but what you're saying is applicable to any business, absolutely. any industry. And that's what I love about learning about businesses. It's like everything does transcend, whether you're in the cupcake business or you're in the whatever business this is. It's, right? It's, it's insurance. About, yeah, yeah. Real estate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of that has to do with customer service. What's a top recommendation for the uh, way to improve customer service that you see like missed again and again and again? Now, I work with a lot of big companies, so it shows up more clearly, but you can scale it down to whatever size business. When a big company buys from a big company, there are, after the sale, there's people who install or who implement, uh, project managers, customer service, three tiers of customer support, in you know, technical engineering and so forth. In, I just in want a person to talk to. And well, it, it may or may not be okay that there's not one person to talk to. When I need tech support, I don't want to call the sales guy. I want tech support. But now your tech support have to realize 
this customer is on it's still on their journey right we think of the time we got them as a lead to the time they ended up buying from us as the customer journey that's the if the part of the cycle job is getting if the customer only cares about the outcomes that selling process that's why they ha- patiently put up with you that part of actually achieving outcomes that's what they were that's why they did it you have to start thinking that all of the people all the things that you do after that sale was made that is selling that is powering the customer that's propelling them along a journey that's going to be a repeat sale mm-hmm. or a cross sale or a referral all of that service stuff that's not service that costs us you're not a cost center you are driving the next sale the mindset is right the mindset should be you people are the most important part of our company you get repeat customers if you aren't servicing people and asking how's it going and asking that second and don't get them off the phone as quick as you can. We're not measuring that anymore. We're measuring how deeply you understand that customer and learn about more stuff that they need so that you can get that word about that to the salesman who calls on them. That's what you're paid for. And if it's just you, that is your, when that customer is wrestling with your product, that is the time to shine great story i had a a gore we had this customer texas instrument and we made the cable that go went into some old-fashioned printers the printers that had the dot matrix that go left and right yeah yeah um (laughs) the high-end printers that that had the pins that pressed so hard that you could go through multi-part forms like the five-part airplane tickets and the insurance things you remember the old carbon paper five right so they made the printers that were used in insurance offices, travel agencies, and behind the ticket counter. And is that the ink the, that you could smell too? No, I'm just kidding. I know it wasn't. But yeah, <laughs> those are those um, are printers or different kind of copiers. I'm just yeah. And so when a printer goes down at an airline ticket counter at the gate, there's a seventy-five million dollar plane that can't take off because a piece of a $4 piece of cable failed, a $75 million plane can't take off. So anyway, we made this cable for this company. And one day they called us and said, the connectors aren't going on correctly. This was a cable that you put these connectors on and with one quick swipe, all 25 wires were connected just like that. It's, It's not working anymore. Something's wrong. And so we said, send us some of the stuff back and you know, what's going on and the connectors that you're using. And so that quick back and forth for a day or two. And we found out that the cable we shipped them was just inside of the specification that we'd agreed on, but right, just barely inside. So it was, it was right just inside on the high side and it didn't, and the, and the connectors didn't work. So as a result, we found out the spec was wrong. We had shipped to spec, but the spec was wrong. So now what are we going to do? Well, we had to 
take all the cable back and inspect stuff that was this far in the spec and then the next little bit in the spec. And so we had to figure out what the new spec should be. So we got a whole bunch of cable samples from in different increments. How bad should the, you know, where should the new spec would be? And we're going back and forth and shipping stuff overnight and going back and forth. We finally figure out what the new spec and they said, we've been lying down for two weeks now. We need to catch up. So we said, we can't get you 20,000 feet of cable, but we can get you 1,500 feet a day. We will make you 1,500 feet a day. We'll get it built to the new spec. We'll get it shipped out every night to you. And you need 1,000 feet a day, but you just need to, you know, 500 feet is going to go into your inventory every day. So we did that every day for a month. We got them well. We got them well the first day, and then we're just staying ahead of them, staying ahead of them. Finally, the last meeting, after everything's caught up, we have the, you know, the last meeting, and they told us, okay, you guys, you were 30% more expensive than the only other product in the world that could fit in this cable because of the very high number of flex life. But here's why we bought from you and we've been buying from you for 20 years, 15 years, because we knew that this cable was on the bleeding edge of technology and somebody was, both of you were equally likely to screw up and do this. We knew it because there's only two companies in the world who could even try to make this stuff. But we knew that you, Gore, would do exactly what you did. You worked like mad to figure out what the spec should be and you worked like even more mad to get us get well and keep us keep the the impact to a minimum. Well, you did exactly what we thought you were going to do, which is take care of us. And we knew the other company would have answered the phone said, yeah, it's in spec. You agreed to the what, spec. What do you want to do about it? Yeah. Our contract says this. The bill, the bills due. Don't be late with the payment. And there's a new shipment coming on your deck tomorrow. Don't be late with that either. So the moral of the story is not, hey, screw up so you can show how great you are. No, but when something does happen here. The moral of the story is you learn earn so much credibility with a customer when something goes wrong and you show who you truly are to that customer, mm -hmm. absolutely, mm -hmm. right? That transcends, again, that's another statement that just transcends industry. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the other story, the similar story with my first wife, she got a call the night before she was supposed to go in for LASIK. Mm -hmm. LASIK, yeah. And LASIK. And the doctor said, I just looked at your readings and your cornea is too thin. I really don't want to do LASIK on your cornea because if we have to rework it, there's not going to be enough left. So, and I'm so sorry we didn't catch this until the night before. So, what I'm going to do is we're going to do the implantable lens, which normally costs considerably more, but I'm just going to do it for you at the same price because I'm so sorry we didn't catch this. You know how many patients she referred to that doctor. Wow. That's a great story. Right? Yeah. So that doctor took ownership of the fact that they were really busy and the tech who took those readings missed something that maybe they should have caught, maybe they shouldn't. But how did it impact the, right? the client? How did it impact the, the customer? And how did we minimize that? So yeah. there's a million of those stories. Yeah. And be one of those stories. Oh, 
I have so many questions that I would love to still ask you, but I I almost feel like we should stop on that. Like, be one of those stories. Yeah, be that guy. And be be that guy. Oh well, as I said, I do have a few questions left. One thing, like, who who was a mentor for you? Like, as you've been going through this, you mentor a lot of people. You've done a lot. I mean, is one of the people at the, you know, the first company that you worked with, are they still your mentors? Like who mentors you? Who do you yeah, stay in touch with yeah, that they, continues they to push you? Still, yeah, they aren't still, but they were while I was there. They left for a competitor, so we couldn't talk for a long time. And then we kind of fell out of touch. But I've had mentors at every one of my jobs. And I've been wise enough to be able to look at some people who are very influential and pick apart this is a part of that person's character that I want to emulate, mm -hmm. and this is a part I don't. I'm not going to halo that person. This is the part I want to emulate. One of my other big mentors was, his name was Bob Miller. He was one of the founders of Miller Hyman, that sales training company that I worked for many years. And he was a big friend and supporter. He used to say, it kind of apropos to this talk, you don't know what to sell until you know what your customer is trying to buy. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to mm -hmm. go into that with a mindset of empathy, interest, and caring that you care. Yeah, you're going to find, I mean, some of your patients are, there's such a thing as TMI with some of those some patients, but you have to go in wanting to know something about them, more about them than anybody else, so that you can do things for them that nobody else can thought of doing. It's not that nobody else could do them, it's nobody else thought of asking so that they could do. That's the, I'm going to turn it a little bit, you on your, the advice standpoint from one of your mentors to any advice or mentorship that you might give to one of your sons? What would you advise them? Call me more. Call me more. Did you hear that? Call them. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're both awesome kids, but it's you never go wrong by caring too much. You never go wrong by trying too hard for people. You never go wrong by admitting you made a mistake and owning up to it and doing more and doing better. And that really does wrap up, you know, too, kind of ties this into a bow of customer service. It's relationships. A lot of what we're doing are trying to establish relationships and yes, figure out value. But yeah. as you said with your, you know, advice to your sons, I mean, you're doing it because you you do care, you do want a great outcome, and you do want a benefit. Not, I shouldn't use the word benefit, an outcome. I know it's like, yeah, I'm thank you because I'm kind of weird about features, benefits, and outcomes. They're yeah. a famous. Good. Glad I caught myself before. Oh, no, thank you. And you <laughs> caught yourself without me catching you. So, it's a famous Harvard professor who said when somebody walks into your hardware store and asks for a three eighth inch reversible drill, they don't want a drill, they're looking for a hole. Okay, the three eighths inch, the reversible, that's the features. The whole is the benefit, but the outcome is I taught my son woodworking and he and I sat down on the sofa and watched my 
his son, my grandson, play with a wooden toy that we made for him together. During COVID, I used that drill to hang. I ordered photographs from our favorite vacations that my wife and I had taken. We printed them in two foot by three foot enlargements on canvas, and we hung them around the house to remind ourselves during COVID lockdown that there's this big, beautiful world out there that we are dying to experience again. That's what I did with that drill. That is the outcome. You have to know so much about me. You have to know I'm married. I love to travel. You know, I do woodworking. You have to know things about me before you can start to sell that outcome. But how much more compelling is that outcome than a whole? I think that's a really, it's a deep way to think about what we do and what we have to offer as, yeah. as business owners and leaders and the services that we're providing. And, you know, the sad thing is mm. you probably do that. You just don't know that you do that. And and you didn't have the conversation with your customers, with your patients, so that they know that you know that what you did actually helped them do that. Mm. All you had to do is have them have that conversation and acknowledge, you know, you helped me learn woodwork, teach my son woodworking. I really appreciate that about you. What you know, you could have taught their they could have taught their son without you getting partial credit for it. And it's only because you didn't care enough to learn and to have that conversation with. Mark, I think I've probably taken up enough of your time. You have instilled to myself and I'm sure listeners so much more wisdom than we had when we came in. And you've allowed me to see things differently, although like a lot of it resonates with me in order to see literally see things differently it takes somebody else's mind and their viewpoint in order to help transform my own so that hopefully i can be a better entrepreneur and leader for my team as well as being a better i'll say giver of value and really looking for that for my customers so thank you so much for spending time with me today and for teaching us a different way to view the world and sharing us your own art of seeing clearly Allison, what a pleasure. It has been a really great conversation. I so feel you're insightful and perceptive, and I just really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Oh, well, I had to join myself. So maybe someday we'll get to meet one-on-one and we'll get to do that again. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.